our pastor's back. I get to, I get to introduce our pastor. Oh, come on up. Uh, any uh, leadership team here? I, I know it's a busy, it's a good day for the beach, but any um, uh, leadership members, please come and join me while we pray for uh, our pastor here. As he, after three months, that he's going to share what the Lord showed him in three months sabbatical and. Um, and I'll pray, and anyone has a word, please feel free. So, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that uh, 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 when we glibly say it's nice to have you back, uh, it's nice to have you back without glibly saying it. And I pray, Father, that uh, what you shared with him the last three months that will come across with your power, with your anointing, with your healing, with understanding. And, Father, I just pray that... Uh, you know, I'm reminded when Jesus gave a sermon, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And, and Father, I just thank you for the anointing that is on our pastor. And I, I pray for more. I pray for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit because you're, you're good and you're good all the time. And I, I thank you for the Bible calls a office of pastor a gift to the church. And uh, uh, we... we uh, honor that gift and we and we uh, submit to that gift so i thank you lord for what you're doing um, and i guess amen is in order amen amen all right thanks brother take a look at you for a second that's all I uh, first we need to say thank you um, because uh, there's a lot of people to thank you know um, King David had his share of ups and downs and at one of his lowest points his best friend Jonathan came to help him and in first Samuel 23 it says that Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Now, that's a good friend. We've got a lot of friends that will help you find strength in other things. I have friends that have helped me find strength in gossip. You know, let's talk about everybody else's sins so you forget about yours. Or friends that have helped me find strength in pleasure so that you can forget about whatever it is you've got going on. But it's a real friend. It's an excellent friend who can help you Find strength in God who can bridge that gap and bring you closer to him. That friend is worth their weight in gold. And so I just want to say how thankful I am for Bud and Harless as our elders. These guys are truly good friends. We owe them many thanks for leading us during this time. You guys have been great. It's not been easy. In the last few weeks, uh, Bud has been saying, wow, I have a fresh appreciation for what pastors do. I think that's why he's smiling so much. He's just glad he's off the hook now, aren't you? Um, and then I'm very thankful for our servant team and uh, for their care and their leadership. It's been a real blessing that they have rolled up their sleeves and they've, they've really led us well in this time and provided a good time of rest for me and our family. And I'm also very thankful for Janelle. 
Uh, Janelle is, uh, wow, what a blessing she is to our church and the work that she does in our office. And in so many ways, she's the glue that sort of holds and holds the whole thing together. And uh, Janelle does it with integrity and with grace and never complains. And she just does it. <laughs> and so, Janelle, thank you. You've been wonderful. <laughs> you know, a church can only be as strong as her people. And uh, New River is a strong church. She's a good, strong church. And it literally has been three months since I've stood here. And it's uh, a weird feeling, I've got to say. I'm not going to lie. But it's cool to see a couple of new faces. And I just want you to know, you found a good church. This is a good people. This is the kind of people that you can bring a friend to and know that they're going to be loved and they're going to be treated with grace and they're going to be brought to Jesus and it's a good people. And so uh, I just want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. And now I just want to share this morning testimony. That's it. I don't have a sermon, so I apologize for that up front, but um, hopefully you can learn some things that, uh, well, I've always told my kids, if you can learn from the mistakes of others and take good notes, you know, you can avoid a lot of pain for yourself. So take good notes today. I've got some things to show you, some things that God's taught us in the last couple of months. You know what they say about the plumber? He's the guy whose pipes are always clogged because he's so busy fixing everybody else's. Spiritually speaking, I've been the plumber for 26 years. It's always been easy to fix other people and help other people and never really take the time to look at the clogs, if you will, in my own life. And this sabbatical in the last couple of months has been an excellent time to take a good look at my marriage and my family and my life. And <clears throat> honestly, it's not all pretty. Nobody lives in a perfect world. Nobody gets to grow up in a perfect family. Not even Jesus had perfect parents. So if Jesus didn't escape the thorns of this planet, none of the rest of us will either. We all get wounded. We all do. And over time, those wounds become lenses through which we see the rest of the world. Every one of us sees life through wounds. Every one of us. The beautiful message of Jesus Christ is this, that I can change my lenses. I can either see life through, God bless you, friend. I can either see life through my wounds or I can see it through Jesus' wounds. If I look at life through my wounds, then I have to spend my entire life protecting myself because nobody wants to get wounded again. If I can see life through the wounds of Jesus, I have grace, I have forgiveness, I have freedom. The cross was brutal for Jesus, but it was enough. It was sufficient to forever change the way you and I can see life and to see the world around it, around us. For me, I've been seeing life through the lens of rejection. Growing up, I always, I was never much of an athlete. Uh, it was painfully obvious that I did not fit into that 
proud, nor was I much of an academic. You need a certain GPA to fit into that club, and I was sorely underqualified. And there's a certain level of cool required to be a part of the in crowd, and I was on the outs. I mean, there was even a time I was into Star Trek, and I didn't understand it. I couldn't even fit in with the nerds. I mean, like, that's bad. And then 26 years ago, I entered vocational ministry and discovered that the same unwritten rules apply. Size does matter. How big is your church? How big is your staff? How big is your budget? How many speaking engagements are in your calendar? How many books have you published? My personal answers to those questions revealed how much I lacked and how little I still fit in. Rejection, rejection, rejection. The filter's grown thick over the years, and I've perceived the words and the actions of other people through that filter. The voice inside my head says, not there. You're not quite there. Rejection. Publicly and professionally, it can be covered up with smiles and jokes and caring for other people. Shifting the focus, you know, enables me to be a good pastor, helps to ignore the gnawing voice inside of constant rejection. However, it never went away. The human being is an amazing creation, aren't we? God did good. <laughs> he made us with this breathtaking intricacy and an ability to survive. And so, for me, looking at life through the wound of rejection, I developed two really good methods of protecting myself from experiencing rejection, right? If I look at life through my wounds, I have to spend my life protecting myself because nobody wants to get wounded again. So for me, they were judgment, and religious rebellion. Judgment. If I could judge someone before they rejected me, then I can escape their rejection. So you're just a jerk. You're just not spiritual enough. Answers that question, I can move on. Or religious rebellion. Not bragging, but I kind of know my Bible. So I can throw Bible verses around better than anybody, you know? So if I can find a set of Bible verses to back up why I'm right and you're wrong, then I prove my point and I walk away and I've not experienced rejection. That's what I mean by religious rebellion. So judgment most often took the form of little zingers or questions that I would ask with a certain tone of voice. Early on in our marriage, one of the zingers that... I hit my wife with, she enjoys reading a good novel. She received a judgmental zinger from me one day. I said, you have time to read those novels, but you don't have time to read the Bible. I've made enough statements like that over the years that I've done damage to my wife's soul. Religious rebellion takes the form of a bullish determination to obey God at any cost. 
So armed with Bible verses to support my activities, I felt invincible. I'm serving the Lord. I'm right. I'm right. Confession. I've always felt that I was more like Christ than most. So try living with a guy like that. I've discovered the hell I put my family through in the last 26 years. Our youngest daughter, Carissa, went off to college last fall. Leaving our house feel hollow and empty. The dog and the cat just don't cut it. And so the marital dance that my wife and I have had for 26 years began to reveal itself. The years of stepping on one another's toes in that dance began to reap their ugly fruit. Our marital dance was never obviously awful, you know? In fact, a lot of people have admired our marriage over the years because we didn't, you know, we didn't yell, we didn't scream, we didn't have these huge blow-ups. We shared a lot of laughs. We shared Jesus together. We served Jesus together. We sang together. We enjoyed a lot of good times together, you know? But our dance was still off. It was still toxic. And over time, that toxicity builds. You know, in all my years of ministry counseling, I've never counseled a couple getting a divorce who planned on it. Every single marriage that falls apart is a surprise to those involved. Like I said, everybody has wounds. And every married couple brings those wounds into their marriage. And God in his infinite wisdom has a way of pairing us up with someone whose wounds just perfectly rub up against our own. Because I believe God's goal in marriage is not for you to be happy. It's for you to be holy. And God will do what it takes for that to be made complete in your life. So how does this play out in our marriage? Well, Karis grew up as a missionary's kid in Argentina. Missionary's kid. Her entire life, she felt second to the second place to the call of God on the family. I mean, you can't argue against the call of God. It's God. You know, so she was without a voice. And she felt as though her feelings and her needs and her wants, all of those had to take second place to God's call on the family. Now, don't get me wrong. Her parents were wonderful, and her her mom and dad never directly told her this, you understand. It's not not at all the case. They're great people. It's just the assumption. It's the message that she heard in her soul from the earliest time that she can remember, that it's either her or it's God's call, and God's got to win every time. And so she stayed quiet. She learned, you know, voicing it doesn't change it, so why bother voicing it? And then she married me, a guy who is bent on doing something important for God in order to avoid rejection. Not so that God would be glorified, mind you, but so that I can feel satisfied. Very tricky thing. 
it's easy to it's easy to mask impure motives in ministry. Remember, I can throw Bible verses around pretty good. So, yeah, not so that God would be glorified, but so that I could be satisfied. And I can't be satisfied unless I've done something important for God, something significant for God. But what's that mysterious, significant thing? It's a moving target. Over the years, uh, there's been any number of dreams, calls, goals, passions that I would use to try to fulfill that itch somehow. And, you know, not one of them, not one has become a reality, let alone satisfy the itch. More rejection. So this set up our marital dance. Karis feeling insecure, me feeling insignificant. And every time I would suggest another dream or call or a great idea from God, she would feel insecure and powerless to really speak into it at all. I would perceive her insecurity as rejection of me and as holding me back from doing something great for God. And so when that happened, guess what I did? Either judge or rebel. So judge, you know, she's just not as spiritual as I am. She doesn't get it. Or rebel, well, here's all my Bible verses for why I'm right and you're wrong. So, you know, suck it up, girl. God's in this. You got to do this. And I would barrel off. For 26 years, we danced that way. And instead of helping my wife to become a stronger woman, and overcome the insecurity that she's had since she was young, I made her feel even more insecure and more powerless, which I believe would be a major failure on my part because I happen to believe it's the part, it's the job of every good husband to support and care and nurture and cherish the woman that God gives to him. So for 26 years, I felt that I had to obey God at any cost, including sacrificing my marriage and my family for God. But it really wasn't God's call. It was just me running from rejection. On March 5th, I wrote this in my journal. It was a prayer. I said, God, give Karis a new husband and let it be me. been so selfish. My wife has cried out for my love and all I've done is kick and scream. I'm so wrong. I pray that she can forgive me. So Jesus, put me to death that you might live through me. Will you love Karis through me? I cannot be the husband that she needs, but the one who lives in me is all the husband she needs. I must die to myself and let you live through me. And then on March 6th, a day later, I wrote this. Self cannot be defeated. The more we focus on dying to self, the more self-centered we become. All attempts to defeat self only serve to elevate it. So what do we do? How does this beast die? It must be starved. <laughs> 
when it comes to personal holiness, spiritual suicide doesn't work. You cannot die to yourself by yourself. Ask God to kill your self-nature, and he will. But I've got to warn you, it hurts. Everybody prays, make me like Jesus. Nobody prays, break me like Jesus. Everybody wants to share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. God is not the maker of every circumstance, but he is the master of it. And he will use whatever is necessary to make you just like Jesus. The only time that God ever asked one person to be sacrificed for another was at the cross, and he's never doing it again. All those years that I felt that I had to sacrifice my marriage and my family for the call of God, I really wasn't hearing the call of God. And the more I pushed, the worse things became. So Karis and I lived in fear of one another. She was afraid that I would destroy our home. I was afraid that she would ruin my call from God. <laughs> it's impossible to grow in intimacy when, you're, when fear rules your relationship. Listen, what you surrender to will define you. We had surrendered to fear. Can you imagine building a marriage when you're trying to protect yourself from each other? <laughs> Doesn't work so well. So I did something a little weird two months ago in my journal. I was writing, and uh, I wouldn't recommend that always that you do this. It's a little risky, but I did it. I asked a hypothetical question in my journal as I was writing. The question was this. If I were single again, what kind of woman would I want to marry? Like I said, dangerous question. But I began to make my list of the different things that I'd be looking for, you know, if I was on the market again. And it hit me. Karis is everything that I've ever wanted in a woman. She literally hit everything on, those, on that list. So I married the woman of my dreams. I'm one lucky SOB. <clears throat> so what have I learned? Where do we go from here? I got a couple of lessons that we've learned here in this process. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14, it says this. God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may re not remain estranged from him. Can you read that with me? It's up there, right? God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. Do you see the heart of God there? God loves us enough to do whatever it takes to stop us in our tracks if necessary. And I've learned if I'm not running with Jesus, eventually I will run into Jesus. And he's the rock. He's a wall. It hurts. 
But he loves us enough to allow that to happen. He loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to do whatever it takes. Yep. He will mess up your life in order to give you life. The second lesson that I've learned is this. My goal each day now is commune, not control. I can't control circumstances and people around me to prevent rejection. But I can choose to commune with them. And it begins with my bride. I'm learning how to recognize it when I start to feel rejection, when that filter comes, starts to come up. <clears throat> and I'm discovering that if I can catch it and remind myself that, you know, she's not rejecting me. She's just expressing her own beliefs and her thoughts and she's just sharing, you know, then I can hear her. And if I can hear her, then I can commune with her. It's working good so far. The third thing is this. The Bible says that a good wife is an inheritance from the Lord. So Karis is part of my inheritance. Kind of a cool thought. Like she's literally a part of the inheritance that God has in store for me. So each day I repeatedly thank God for the gift that she is to me. The first step to cherishing her is to be thankful for her. I married the king's daughter. She's royalty. She's no ordinary princess. She's his princess. And this requires that I treat her in a way that's befitting her royal status. So I thank the Lord for the inheritance that he's given to me thus far in her. The fourth one is this, that judgmental zingers have to stop. For me, these zingers have mostly been a bad habit, honestly. Just a bad habit. My family growing up, that's how we relate to one another. We, you know, we just, we throw it around, you know? And it's not healthy. It's not good. It's just a bad habit and and honestly I haven't even believed most of the judgmental zingers that I've given you know like it hit me what some I used to throw a lot of zingers about television shows you know I mean I, my, my wife likes Harry Potter and she likes sci-fi stuff I don't get it like I said, I tried to fit into the nerd club. I never did years ago. And so over the years, I've made these zingers. And it just hit me like, I don't care about Harry Potter. Why would I say something hurtful to people that I love over something I don't care about? So enough with the zingers already. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. So they are gone. In fact, each night before we go to sleep, we try to pray together. I admit I fall asleep most nights. 
I fall asleep on you last night? She actually said, can I, she actually said, uh, she wanted to pray, and I'm like, well, well, you pray. And she said, well, no, every time I pray, you fall asleep before we finish. <laughs> and it just now hit me. I don't remember her saying amen. Did you, <laughs> did you, did I fall, I probably, did I fall asleep on you last night? Oh. That was a good prayer, honey. But anyway, so I asked this question. I say, well, um, I say, did I say or do anything today that hurt you? I just want to check in. And, uh, you know, so far, doing well. And I'll say more about this on Father's Day because I've discovered how um, judgment becomes an atmosphere in our homes where everybody who has to live in that atmosphere steps on, walks on eggshells, afraid that the next boom is going to drop. And I think that it affects a lot of us men. And so that's coming on Father's Day. Stay tuned. The fifth one is this. I used to think that I had to do something important for God before I died. And I stand here and I regret to you that I've preached that sermon so many times over the years. <clears throat> the problem with that is what's the, what is the important thing? Who's defining what's important? That's the problem with that statement, my friend. I mean, it's a good thing to want to live for God. Don't get me wrong on that. I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying, be careful how you define what that is. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says that in our marriage, that Karis represents the church and I represent Jesus. And it, again, it hit me. I get to be the Christ figure in our marriage. Could there be any higher call than that? And when I realized that in 26 years, I've sorely fallen short of that ideal. Now I realize it's very important that I represent Jesus well in our home and in our marriage. Success is not defined by what I do for Jesus, but how deep I go with Jesus. Let's redefine success. Success is about intimacy not about accomplishment. In heaven, we're not going to spend eternity saying how much money we made or how many titles we got or how many degrees we had or how big my this was or how big that was. It's about intimacy. So. And then the last thing is this, and then I'm done. Number six. What, what and who we love affects how we live. It's not the world that stains me. It's my love for the world that stains me. Let me be blunt. Alcohol is not the problem for the alcoholic. It's his love for alcohol that's the problem. Selfishness is not the problem for the selfish person. It's love for self that's the problem. There's no value in staying away from sin if sin is all I think about. 
It's not my distance from sin that matters. It's my desire for it. That's the problem. So change what and who you love, and it'll change your life. Have you ever noticed that we always have time for what we love? And we always have money for what we love, even if I go into debt for it, but I still love it, I have the money for it. It's amazing, our time and our money, we always have it for what we love. <sighs> the truth is, uh, in 26 years of marriage, I've really loved myself more than I loved my wife because it's been about pursuing running from rejection. So during these last three months, that has changed. Love is a passionate pursuit of oneness. I love that definition of love. It's a passionate pursuit of oneness. My wife and I are now passionately pursuing oneness to eliminate whatever the barriers are that stand in the way of that oneness, whether it's rejection, religious rebellion, judgment, name it, and then celebrating those things that strengthen that oneness. We've discovered that in an argument, when it comes to a disagreement that we have, if one of us wins, both of us loses. It's not about winning, it's about oneness. So those are some of the things that we've learned in the last uh, couple of months. I want to thank you. Um, thank you, because uh, these last three months have literally changed our lives forever. I don't say that lightly. And I'm sure there's a lot to come. This is just the effects in our marriage and our home. But the effects in ministry are still to be seen, I suppose. But a lot of things have changed. And I want to thank you for it. Jesus, I want to thank you for the hope that if I can just see life through your wounds, it trumps, it heals my wounds. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn how to do that more and more. I know for me it's just the filter of rejection, but for each one of us there, no doubt, is a different set of wounds, a different filter. So I pray, Lord, that in your grace and in your perfect time, you would reveal what that is to each one of us so that each one of us can deal with that in the same way and get rid of it. Lord, 
I pray that my, as you've been healing the dance in our marriage, I pray that, Lord, the dance that we experience in, the, in our church and the way that we relate to one another would be equally as healthy and whole and strong. So I thank you, Jesus, for this in your name.